Qatar Airways is the official airline sponsor of this episode of Travel That Matters. From Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. And I think everybody, all your listeners know what it's like when you have that magic moment of place and spirit that just sort of pervades where you think, this is it. This is what travel is all about. That's National Geographic's Andrew Nelson. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is Travel That Matters. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Travel That Matters. This is the podcast where we explore the world's most exceptional and meaningful travel experiences. My guest today is an old friend of mine and a longtime National Geographic travel writer and a former editor for National Geographic Traveler magazine. Andrew Nelson is his name, and he just wrote a book for National Geographic called Here, Not There, 100 Unexpected Travel Destinations. It's coming out in a few weeks here in April, and basically this book is about, well, as the as the title suggests, it's about 100 kind of alternative destinations to more popular places, right? You know, beaches, cities, regions that you might not have considered a lot of these destinations before. I certainly hadn't considered some of these places, but he is going to fill us in on several of them today. We're going to talk about places everywhere from, you know, Italy to Indiana and many, many others, a lot of them actually in the United States, places that, you know, maybe a lot of us haven't thought of. They're very close to home and we just haven't been there. So you're definitely going to have a lot of places to add to your travel wish list after hearing this episode. If you like this episode, please write us a review and follow Travel That Matters wherever you get your podcast. We have an all new season of our MasterChef series coming out in just a few weeks here with guests like we got Wolfgang Puck, Danny Meyer, Charlie Palmer, and several other culinary leaders. So Please stay tuned for that. But for now, let's explore some of the world's unexpected destinations with National Geographic's Andrew Nelson. Andrew, great to see you. Thank you for joining us on Travel That Matters. Thank you, Bruce. It's great to be on Travel That Matters. Well, we are here to talk about your new book, here, not there with National Geographic. I'm very excited. It, it's not coming out yet, obviously. It's it's coming out in, a, in a, about a month here. Can you just give us like a quick one-minute overview of what this book is all about? Well, Here, Not There is in some way National Geographic's answer to the dupes craze on TikTok. Basically, what this is is about looking at destinations that have or contain some attribute or promise of a major iconic destination like Paris or London. And it came about because, as you know, you travel a great deal, I travel a great deal. Things were more crowded, destinations were more expensive. Social influencers could somehow make a place overnight become the place to go. And importantly, this all has impact too on the planet as well. So this was a way of getting people to think outside of the box. So think of this as uh, some destinations that are just a little out of view, or if you've already heard of them, you're seeing them in a new way. I like that. Is there like, was there a moment in your travels or something? Like how long have you been kind of focused on this type of, you know, 
alternative destination? And has there been some moment in your travels that kind of pointed you in this direction? I'm a big believer in exploring places that are overlooked. So for example, one of my favorite destinations in the United States is Ohio. They've got amazing cities with amazing cuisine, amazing culture, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland. And these are the places that deserve a second look or basically even a first look if you've just flown over them. I, I like that you bring that up. I'm, I'm actually going to ask you about another American city that I think a lot of people overlook um, in a bit here. But I, I, I want to bring up, too, I like that you call them, you know, in the, the title of the book, it's unexpected destinations, not, you know, better or trouble. It's just it's places that kind of because it brings in that element of surprise, which I think is so important in in travel. Has there been, you know, recently for you a destination that. Because we've all had this, right, where you don't expect much out of it, and then it just kind of sweeps you, you off your feet. Yeah. Have you had that recently? Yeah. Actually, uh, very recently, I just was in Greenville, South Carolina, and I was totally blown away by the food scene there, the urban scene. There were so many people on the sidewalks, it felt like Manhattan more than a former mill town in uh, the mountainous area of South Carolina. I think it's going to give Asheville a run for its money, actually. Greenville, you, t- you mentioned a few cities in Ohio. It seems like a lot of the destinations in this book are domestic alternatives to maybe foreign experiences. Is that, was that an intentional thing? Is, it, is that a sustainability issue? Like, what, what drove that? Very much this book was conceived commissioned and written a large chunk of it through COVID. So if you all remember, we were thinking a little bit about how how do we travel when things are locked down? We have to travel very carefully. Do we travel at all? Now, I think the first thing I want to dispel is this idea that here or not there is, you know, recommending that you don't go to Paris. We're always going to have Paris. You'll always go to Paris and Bali and Yellowstone and Hollywood. But these are destinations that offer some of the same allure, magic, or feeling, but without the long lines, their higher prices, and perhaps you even get bragging rights. For example, I think we're going to probably talk about it, but everybody goes to Florence. You know, you could go out, I could go out in the streets of Charleston, South Carolina, where I am now, and probably tap somebody on the shoulder, and chances are good they've been to Florence, Italy. But not too many people have been to Lecce, Italy, and Puglia in the, in the heel of Italy. Italy alone, you could probably fill up 100 just in Italy. The, the amount of destinations that you know, people are focused on, Florence, Rome, Venice, the, you know, the Amalfi Coast. There are so many other cities like Turin. I've, you know, I actually haven't been, but I've heard amazing things about Turin. But I like, I like your point that this is not intended as a replacement. It's intended as an alternative and, and a, another place to get a similar experience. Because you're right. I mean, we don't want to stop going. To, I'm not going to stop going to London. I love London, right? No, of course. But, and Charleston, you're in Charleston. I mean, Charleston yeah. is not exactly a hidden gem, but it is a gem, right? I mean, it is. Yeah. There, there's a reason why so many people go there and love it. And, you know, I, I, and so I think that is a very important point to make. And again, I do think we're always looking for that kind of Different, something, trying something new. But okay, wait, we mentioned Lecce, Lecce, Italy. Let's start there since you already brought it up. It sounds like I've never been there, but it's, you know, kind of Florence like, as you say, without the crowds. And it's 
beaches too, right? I mean, you've got you've got coastline. There, there are beaches along the coast, and you can stay in these medieval fortified farmhouses. So there was a real Game of Thrones moment for that the Puglia and on that little peninsula, which is actually the heel of Italy. So if you imagine. Italy is a very fashionable boot, right? Of course, because it's Italian, hand-tooled leather. Then, you know, up at the very top of the islet is places like Milano and Firenze, and Rome is in the middle. But this is all the way down in the heel, and that heel sticks into the sea so that in the Middle Ages, this sort of became on the cutting edge of defense, a rapid early warning system, If, as you were, if you remember Game of Thrones, where they built the watchtowers with the fires, and then the other one would light the fire, and the other one would light the fire. Well, that was this peninsula. That's where that came from. So a lot of the smaller farm towns around, uh, around Lecce have these sort of I don't, I don't want to call them fortified like they're like a fort, but they are, imagine a defensive villa, if you will. And the, <laughs> the, the weather, Bruce, is amazing. It's like that soft L.A. or San Diego days where, you know, there are lemon trees and the sun is shining. But what's really fascinating is the quality of the light on that coast and the quality of light in the city. The Salento Peninsula has got this amazing sense of light. So walking around, um, you know, the Italians have that term, and excuse me if I mangle it because I don't speak Italian, but dolce far niente, which is that sweetness of doing nothing. And what's so great about Lecce is it's got this Baroque medieval town. You should wander around eating gelato, and as the sun sets, the, the city was built out of the local limestone. So it's all golden. And when that light, that setting sun strikes it, it becomes this amazing sort of like, you feel like you're, you're walking through the treasures of the Vatican. I mean, everything is just golden. Okay, it's so when that, when that sun is lighting up the golden hour, where, what are you having for your, you know, your cocktail and, and, and what are you eating there? Like every region of Italy obviously has its own style of cuisine and drinks and, and what, what, what's kind of the, the, well, in Lecce, the Puglia. Lecce, it's seafood, it's fresh produce. And the way, as you know, Italians make 82 dishes for the table. My very first day there, I was invited to eat near the old Jewish quarter. I had an Airbnb that overlooked the main town plaza and the ruins of an ancient Roman Colosseum or, you know, theatrical ruin. And it was like 150 a night, you know, it was like this with this amazing view. You couldn't get this view anywhere. Anyway, so I walk in and, and, and so not only did this lovely woman book me into this room, she picked me up at the train station and then she said, oh, you're a journalist. Oh, well, I have journalist friends come to eat with us tonight. Sure enough, a fabulous group of people just, you know, talking and eating and drinking the local wine. It's a red, and I wish I can recall the name of it right now, but I can't. Maybe it's because I had too many glasses that evening. But you know what it's like. So, you know, and I think think everybody, all your listeners know what it's like when you have that magic moment of place and just spirit that just sort of pervades where you think, this is it. This is what travel is all about. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to hear why Andrew selected Detroit 
as one of his 100 unexpected destinations. Okay, so we, we mentioned a lot of them were domestic, a lot of the destinations. Let's bring it back to the U.S. and to a city that I think a lot of people would not think of as a, as a destination, yeah. and that is Detroit. I love it that you included Detroit here. Tell us why. Well, first of all, I think Detroit is one of those towns that has been given a bad rap for so long. And sometimes... It's, it's actually deserved some of the problems. It's had terrible problems with violence, terrible problems over the years. But it's actually come out of that and has become, you know, this real flourishing. One of these, again, one of these Midwestern cities that are known for its excitement. They're known for the arts. And one of the reasons is that is a very simple reason. L.A., New York, San Francisco have become far too expensive to take any risks whatsoever. You're not going to open a restaurant in Los Angeles, unless you can be, you, know, you have a, you're fairly assured it's going to be a big hit. And for young uh, restaurateurs, it's almost impossible. So places like Detroit offer that. And one of the things that I think is so interesting and why I did it, I think you look back at Detroit's history. So Detroit was Silicon Valley in the 1920s, 1930s, just this tremendous boom. And of course, what was driving it was the automobiles. Well, with all this money that was being made in Detroit, the interesting thing that was happening was that these new titans of industry were commissioning these skyscrapers. And the style of the time was Art Deco. So they commissioned and created an amazing series of, I would call them cathedrals of commerce, and decorated them in the Art Deco style. So much so that if you were to think about this as being the Miami of the North. Now, laugh if you must. Are you going to laugh at me? Are you going to laugh, Bruce? I got to say, my, my wife has been to Detroit a few times recently for work, and yeah. she comes back raving about it. So I, I, am, I am completely on board here, but I, I you yeah. know, for different reasons than what you're saying. So, so, but it's my way of getting you to look at Detroit, right? So, um, for example, the Guardian Building, which is this this amazing, it feels like, a cathedral of jazz with these sort of ziggurated Mayan arches, a huge mural of the state of Michigan. And that's amazing. Um, the Fox Theater, which is so over the top. And you can go on tours of the Fox Theater. You know, people built to show off then. they But they built it for the public. So you have these immense lobbies and these huge cavernous spaces that are just so many details, gilded, sculpted, all, but again, all in this Art Deco style that unfortunately we can't create today. Somehow we can no longer do what they did. There's another reason why I think you, you refer to it as the Miami of the North, and there's actually beach. I, I mean, from what I understand, there's great parks, beaches. Yeah. They're great. They're beaches. The Detroit River is clean. They have put in an entire bike route along the entire riverfront. And not only that, there are on Belle Isle, which was, speaking of Art Deco, there's an amazing Art Deco lighthouse on Belle Isle, which I've never seen before. But you can go swimming. You can hang out, put your feet in the sand, catch a tan, go into the water. You're not going to do this in January. So it's not, you know, as I said, Miami Beach, but I'm being a little provocative, to be honest, as you realize. But... (laughs) It's still something to rethink what Detroit is. Okay, 
I'm I'm sold. I'm going to. In fact, my wife will be back there soon, and maybe I'll tag along. But I want to talk to you about another river, yeah. famous river city, or not so famous, maybe. But this is a place that you had actually tried to convince me to go to when I was in Thailand last summer, Lurang Prabang in in Laos. Yeah, tell us about that. I mean, that, I've heard amazing things about this place. I do want to go back and make that trip. It's okay. So in in the book, I say if you want serenity and a sense of peace, don't always go to don't go to Sedona for the red rocks and you know the sort of soul nurturing, crystal glittering experience. Go to something real. You know, skip the New Age vortexes and go to Laos and the city on the Mekong, the formal former imperial capital. And I'm telling you, Bruce, it's a combination of these ancient temple shrines mixed with this liltingly gorgeous French colonial architecture with the ochre stucco and the, you know, lantern green shutters. And the whole thing is, you know, only three-story tall buildings. And you're just struck because you're, you're walking. You're not driving. You're not, you know, you're not anywhere. You're walking around this this compact downtown area in the former imperial capital of, of Laos, you're just struck by the people, by the entire mood, by the fact that you can actually spend an entire afternoon just staring out over the Mekong in a little park or islet with, you know, delicious wrapped food. They wrap little snacks and banana leaves. And, and just, you just get this incredible feeling of, peace and serenity. And I guess I've had people talk to me about Sedona and say that this is, you know, a a power vortex. Well, Luang Prabang is certainly that. It is one of the most, some ways, accessible yet still mysterious places that I've ever been. And I absolutely love it. And I do hope that you get a chance to go there. I, I, you know, I'm I'm always going to bring it back to the food. You mentioned the little, the snacks, but, you know, is it, you know, that Northern Thailand, which it's close to, is, you know, the food is legendary in Northern Thailand. Is it a similar type of cuisine in in Laos and Luang Prabang? Well, I'd probably get in trouble if I tell you that it's identical, but it's not. But again, a lot of soups and broths and a lot of incredibly fresh, you know, all over Southeast Asia, but especially in a place like Laos, you people just pick the lettuce, they pick the the basil, they pick the cilantro. It's all picked the day before they, they cut up the chicken, which was alive yesterday. So all of this fresh stuff, they make the noodles, um, is just, you know, comes together. You can go and walk around or go to the night market, for example. At, um, I want to call it Sisavangvang. I hope I got that right. Sisavangvang Road, where they sell amazing... And, and beautiful objects, bracelets, jewelry, bangles, embroiled textiles. And then you can just go and find a side street where you just see a mom-and-pop restaurant where there's literally an iron kettle with a wood fire under it. And, you know, something's bubbling and it smells good and, they, and they'll sit you down. Of course, you sort of squat on these tiny little plastic chairs and you just are immediately given these dishes and you just dig in. You can put anything in that you want it, which is, you know, again, like Thailand, cilantro, green onions, you know, pork, chicken. And 
it's just amazing. I, I think a little kick too, like Northern Thailand. I'm, I'm oh, guessing. Oh, of course, there's a kick. Well, you know, uh, it's you know, this is the thing. There is some competition between Laos is is, is sandwiched between Vietnam and Thailand, and uh, neither of their their bigger neighbors were at, very nice to them. That's sort of why they ended up getting the French to intercede. Now, what's interesting is that the French, of course, in their colonialist expansionist way, said, great, we'll come in. So they built a Beaux-Arts palace for the king, and that became sort of the king's residence, like Buckingham Palace. And, you know, you can go and tour it, and it's it's really interesting. But if you go out to the garage, in the garage is a giant tail-finned Edsel, Ford Edsel that the U.S. government gifted the current king in the 1950s, and it's still there. It's 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 amazing. It's like happy days in the jungle. Okay, all right, happy happy days in the jungle. This next place, I think I think we'll have. <laughs> that's just the Edsel. I realize. Right, that, I'm sure we're going to hear from some people. Happy days with, in the jungle. I would. <laughs> I mean, what's in 1950s? I don't know. Man, who knows? Well, I, I think. Well, okay. So let's get to another place where there's. I'm sure there's plenty of pop culture references here. You mentioned London earlier. We talked about London earlier. Manchester. Manchester instead of London. Tell us about that. All right. Well, Manchester, and I also took some notes, too, because, you know, part of the thing is when you write about 100 destinations, (laughs) you're always, you you, sometimes they all sometimes can merge together. but, But Manchester was a favorite of mine because it is sort of this American kind of English city. If it's the most... Does that mean it's Australian? Right. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Although, you know, the native Mancusians, as, men, as, as people from Manchester are called, were the Gibbs brothers who migrated to Australia, but the Bee Gees were originally from Manchester. And they still party like crazy in that town. I mean, if this is a town where you would like to dance till dawn and, you know, drink like a fool, you can do that in Manchester and th- there's a wonderful sense of style, a uh, street style there. I mean, it was really, um, uh, when I was staying in a hotel, I was expecting a, a FedEx delivery, and the FedEx driver appears, he's head to toe in Prada. Go figure. BGs, perfect, well, perfect. And they've got, right, and they've got a national football, the National Football Museum is there, and great other museums. They even have a Roman fort, because of course, as Americans always don't know, Britain was colonized by the Romans way back in the first century. So um, very old place, but a place that Americans would feel at home for. It's like basically what I say, three nights, two-hour train trip, you can go and have a great time. It's only two hours away from London. You know, okay, so we're we're talking about music. We're talking – so that brings up the – some of the destinate or destinations aren't necessarily destinations, but more event focused. You have one. I, I want to talk about this one. You have one in Santa Fe. It's a it's a music. I don't I don't know what kind of festival it is. You tell me. But it's kind of you're presenting it as an alternative to Burning Man. Talk to it's, talk to me about yes, that one. I call the Zozobra Festival in Santa Fe on Labor Day the Burning Man for every man. And you coined you coined that phrase. Yes, I've coined it. It's trademarked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it on. Uh, it's the 100th anniversary this year of the festival. Really? There's some okay. interesting parallels to it. I mean, they're both in very dry and arid nor, um, Western places. But the thing that's so different, I mean, first of all, it's a one-day festival. 
they construct an effigy of what they call old man gloom. It's this creepy looking, I don't know if you were, when I was a kid, there was a uh, uh, Saturday morning horror movie hour with Sir Graves Gasly, who's sort of this old Shakespearean actor, but that is all in horrible makeup and just looking really weird and scary. So that's what Zozobra looks like. And he's enormous. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, he towers. He's tower. He's about as tall as a as a as a uh, construction crane, and he symbolizes the gloom of the community, people's fears, their miseries, and you can actually write down notes and sad thoughts on paper, and they and they will collect them and put them inside Zozobra. They become fuel for what will become this fire. People have put in wedding dresses. They have put in parking tickets. They have put in lottery tickets that never came through. So anything is just for this fire. So it's totally open to families, right? So people go there, and of course there's like food trucks. They're great bands. So you're sitting in the middle of this crowd, and all of a sudden you hear people start going, burn him, burn him, burn him, burn him. And then this uh, symbolic... Dance happens with, they've got some elaborate backstory, but it's basically a woman with this torch sort of flipping it around, looking like she's dressed like Cher. And so then they torch Zozobra, and the thing just goes up. Like, you you know, it's like Burning Man itself, but it's it goes up faster. His little head explodes. I mean, it's not little, but you're sitting there, the fireworks go off. It's, it's amazing. And... Interesting enough, it was started by artists in tw- in, in, in nineteen twenty four. A hundred years ago. So it's, this is the hundredth yeah. anniversary this year. Yeah. When, and it's yeah. you said Labor Bill Day. Schuster, yeah, Labor Day. Labor Day. Okay, that's that's a good excuse to go there. Okay, and and it kids sounds like love it. They love torching this guy. Yeah, and, and so it's good for kids. And you're also staying in Santa Fe rather than you know, which is yeah, of in course, the middle of uh, you know one well, yeah you know Black Rock, right, right, where you're just eating dust every day. Yeah. Right. No, right. You're in so I mean, that's a big perk is that you can actually, you know, yeah. have yeah. a wonderful hotel and a great city experience and cultural experience in Santa Fe, yeah. and then you do this for a day. That that sounds a lot. Yeah. More or an evening. To me, you don't even do it for a day. I mean, there. It's very funny. They will have children's groups gather as they hoist Zozobra up, and so you're sitting there with all these little kids, and they're all yelling at him. You're gonna burn. You're gonna burn later. Goodbye, Mr. Gloom. You know, so it's kind of it's 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 really it's it's really charming, very local. It feels like a combination of of Fourth of July and 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 um, you know Norman Rockwell and then uh, fiery apocalypse. We're gonna take a quick break, but stick around because Andrew is gonna tell us where to find Amsterdam in the Midwest. Two more spots I want to ask you about real okay. quick. Indianapolis, we got, we got another, you know, U.S. city that is probably not on many people's, you know, radars except for maybe for events or something. I proudly will say that Indianapolis and Amsterdam have more things in common than you would think. So, first of all, when we think of Amsterdam, we think of what? Canals. Did you know that Indianapolis has a whole series of them that go right through the middle of town? And they, alongside of them, are bike paths. And as a matter of fact, it's got an, one of the most extensive urban 
bike systems I have ever seen in this country. Not only that, so if you're pedaling downtown, you're separated from the traffic by these beautifully landscaped medians. So you are not risking life or limb. It is quite possible for a family to fly into Indianapolis and spend three full days there without ever renting a car, just on bikes. And if they do, I have a fabulous hotel suggestion for you, which is the Bottle Works Hotel. It's an old Coca-Cola bottling factory. And it was built in the 19, again, Art Deco, right? But it's like crazy over the top Art Deco. All, you know, they have tasting rooms and they have, you know, where they would make the Coke and do all this. And then right across the street is the, um, it's called the Pins Mechanical Company. It's sort of this fun amusement place where you can do duck pin bowling, for example, and do pinball. All these nostalgic sort of, you know, paper moon types of uh, amusements that would have been fun before the war. So it's a real family-focused thing. And then the next day, get on your bike. You can go to the Children's Museum, which is says it's the world's largest. I don't know any. I've never heard anybody else say that. You haven't, so, you haven't uh, measured it yourself. I have not measured it myself. But, uh, yeah, but, but judging by the amount of uh, families trying to get in there when I was pedaling by, yeah, it's worth it. They've got a lovely downtown scene. So, again, uh, little neighborhoods that you can ride your bike into. And then they've got a long canal system, which you can go right out into the middle of, uh, I would say, rural Indiana, it seems. You know, not a car. You don't have to encounter a car anywhere. Okay. Let's let's talk about a city where you definitely need a car, and you will definitely encounter plenty of them, and that is my hometown of Los Angeles. You are highlighting a, spe- a specific part of Los Angeles, and that is East LA. Tell us why. Yeah. Again, this is my whole idea where people always head in a different direction. When people come to L.A., they just stay in the 310, right? They want to stay in West L.A. And, of course, you know, Beverly Hills, Brentwood, uh, you know, Santa Monica, they're all there, all of these tourist attractions. But, you know, Bruce, and this is what I've always done in my entire life. I always said, okay, this is where everybody's going, but what's over here? And so I've got this map of L.A., all right, so I still am a firm believer in paper maps. I love that. I mean, you can, you know, you don't need to endlessly scroll on Google. You know, you can just lay something out, you can draw on it. And so I'm seeing these neighborhoods, Mount Washington, Highland Park, Eagle Rock. Why is it called Eagle Rock? I still, I'm not, I, there must have been an eagle there, right? So, um, you know, this is, and nobody knows anything about this. So, you know, I go up there, and it's just this weird very iconic, distinctly L.A. series of neighborhoods, these sort of canyons and these funny houses that looks kind of like Jenga towers that are sort of piled up on the sides of the hills and they're mid-century split levels and arts and crafts bungalows. And, you know, I think if you go up towards Mount Washington, you'll get some of these great, you know, architectural gems. But it's a part of L.A. that caters to... Angelinos. It doesn't really cater to tourists, which is something I really like about it. I'm actually, being an Angelino, I actually don't know that much about it. So give us just, you know, give us some kind of insider tip, something you discovered along the way. My favorite are the stairs of Northeastern L.A. 
all of these hilly parts of East L.A. are connected to these, these stair, stairways that were put in when the, the region was first developed, when these neighborhoods were first developed, as a way for people to get up and down. And remember, let's go back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, nobody owned as many cars. People would take these stairs and go down and pick up a streetcar. People would climb the stairs, climb down, commute down to downtown L.A. to go to work, and at the end of the day, climb back up and go to their house. So these stairs are all still there. Sometimes they're overgrown. They've got some beautiful, you know, sort of that weird L.A. mix of plants. You know, I don't know what you, jacarandas, and then you've got <laughs> uh, aloe, you know, plants, and sometimes cactus, and God only knows what else. You know, it's sort of this mixed salad of plants you guys got out in L.A., these are just really, really great hikes that you can take, urban hikes. And they also afford, you know, views of downtown L.A. that are just amazing. And go out there, walk around. I mean, you and I both know this, but the only way that you really get to know a city is not by running around in a Lyft or Uber. Um, you got to get out and move through it, either perhaps on a bike or, you know, ideally on foot. That's the way you discover things. All right. So tell, we talked a little bit about Charleston. Tell us quickly what you're doing there and, and, and what you got going. Well, it's, it's interesting that you asked that. So um, right now I'm enjoying myself in Charleston. I teach a class in placemaking at the College of Charleston in the School of Business where I am in residence this academic year. And we are working with uh, juniors and seniors, and we are helping them talk about what gives Charleston its unique sense of place. And the students are tasked with supporting that through social media feeds and uh, working with some of the best travel journalists I can convince to come down here, such as yourself. And the wonderful thing about a class like this is that people are so open to talking about it because people are, you know, they're desperately want to connect with where they are. And, and I think that's why so many people travel, because they want to sense that connection. But you can have it in your own hometown. We also came out, we have, we have a new hashtag. It's called Print is the New Vinyl. So we think print, print is coming back in so many I ways. And what, I, I like that. I like to hear that. Well, print is the new vinyl because one of the things people are so tired of is this endless AI-generated stream of, of, of glittery content that comes streaming down your feed. And you can't focus. You can't anchor. So in a way, what I'm hoping Here Not There is all about, it allows you a chance to take a book, put it firmly in your lap, curl up in your favorite chair, and just flip through and get inspired. I think that sounds great. That is that is absolutely. I, I, I love to hear that that print is a new vinyl, but that but here not there is a is a, a wonderful thing to curl up on the couch with. And now for the wall and wrap up. Chatting with Andrew definitely got me thinking about new destinations to visit, but also of course got me you know, thinking about places that I have been to that that I would consider like good alternative destinations, like the types of places that that I think he should have written about in his book. One of them for sure for me is a place called Alamos in Mexico. It's in Sonora. It's the most northern colonial city in Mexico. So up in the mountains and like cobblestone streets and great old Spanish colonial architecture beautiful city, great town square, like lots of outdoor things, rafting and, and hiking and all this in the surrounding hillsides. Great hotel there, by the way, called Hacienda de los Santos. Beautiful, beautiful, restored colonial mansions. But 
I bring it up for this because it's one of those places that like you kind of get that San Miguel de Ende experience here. Like San Miguel de Ende is magical and I love it. And by the way, to his point of, you know, these aren't, you don't go there instead. It's just an, another option. And because I love San Miguel, I would for sure go back to San Miguel de Ande, but it's just a lot of tourists, a lot of people, a lot of Americans. And so Alamos is kind of a more mellow, quieter, smaller experience in a similar vein. So that's that's definitely one I would add to that list. Sonoma, Napa, that's something I think a lot of people have talked about over the years. But yeah, Napa, of course, is is very popular, the place to go for wine tasting, amazing spot. But you just go over the hill into Sonoma, you get a, a similar but more tranquil, less crowded, very fun, equally exceptional wines experience in Sonoma. We love Hillsburg, California, of course. In Italy, we brought up Italy and how like there's so many places in Italy, you could do an entire book about alternative destinations just in that one country. My favorite is San Cassiano. It's in the Dolomites. And, and so Cortina, which is where the Olympics are coming out, I think 26, something like that. The Olympics are going to be in Cortina, the Winter Olympics. And Cortina is very, such a cool city, but it's very, you know, it's a CNBC type of place, lots of luxury boutiques and fancy hotels. San Cassiano nearby is much more mellow, still amazing hotels, great food, and incredible access to the skiing. In fact, better access to the skiing than than Cortina has. And so you get that same incredible Dolomites experience, but with fewer crowds, a little less expensive, amazing place, San Cassiano. Also in Europe, Dubrovnik has become this, you know, Game of Thrones haven for, you know, so crowded cruise ships and everything like that. It's an amazing place. I love Dubrovnik. But if you want something similar, but a little less crowded, a little more off the radar, go down to Montenegro. Just south of Dubrovnik is Montenegro and cities like Kotor, beautiful coastal city. Go even farther down into Albania and then down into Greece. That whole coastline there, Montenegro, Albania, northern Greece is absolutely fantastic. Beautiful stuff. Very similar to what you're going to find in Croatia but with fewer crowds. And, you know, again, we love Croatia. We love Dubrovnik. We love Napa. But every once in a while, you want to do something different. And we thank Andrew for giving us a bunch of ideas. For more information about the show, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. Travel that matters is produced and edited for Kurtco Media by AJ Mosley. Marketing by Katrin Skipertis. Music by Joey Salvia. And hosted by me, Bruce Wallen. And we will see you down the road.